Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we continue today in our series in the book of Jude called The One True Faith. So let's turn in our Bibles to Jude, verses 1 to 4, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, Contending for the Faith. us remember times in our lives when we had to know the basics of something. You know, I was recently with my seven-year-old granddaughter, and I was asking her about the second grade and what she liked the most, and she told me she liked math, and I said, do you now? And she said, yes, I do. And so in order to treat her badly, I said, well, let's hear you repeat the quadratic formula. And of course, I was being mean, and she was being sweet, and then she told me of some of the things she had learned, and it all had to do with the addition of numbers. Now, I know I'm, I'm being a mean grandpa, and that's just a burden my granddaughter has to bear, but, but I did relent, and I told her how very proud of her I was. And, and that's all true. I'm terribly proud of her. She tells me she loves God most of all, but she also loves math. And, and as she tells me that, I am very grateful, and I love her more than words can say. But I use my silly little example to emphasize a truth that all of us know. There are basics in every single discipline, basics that we must master before we're ready to move on to other things. Miss the foundation and all future learning is futile unless you go back to the beginning and learn what's foundational. Well, it's true of math. It's true in reading. It's also true in our faith. We're studying the short book of Jude, and we've learned that Jude is a book in which we are told that we must contend for the one true faith. Now, today we're going to examine the first four verses of the book, and from those verses, we're going to learn two very important lessons. First, we're going to learn that the true gospel is a gospel of grace. It's about what God has done for us, not about what we do for God. And then second, and conversely, we will learn that the true gospel is something that's always in danger of being lost. Unless we battle for it, we'll soon be forgotten. Now, let's not get ahead of ourselves, so let's begin by reading the first four verses of Jude. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So let's begin. The first two verses in Jude are simply the way in which the ancients wrote letters. This book is a letter. In modern letters, we typically start with the words, Dear Joe, or Dear Mary, or Dear Somebody, and then we write the letter, and at the very end, we sign our name, Love Fred, or Love Elizabeth. Well, that's how it goes. And this arrangement of modern letters has always struck me as strange. I mean, why do we wait to the very end to sign our names? I mean, do we actually think that it's a good idea to wait until the very end of the letter to actually reveal who's writing this thing? I mean, don't you see, our arrangement of letters really doesn't make that much sense. 
But in the ancient world in which the New Testament was birthed, all letters began with three elements. The first was to identify who's writing the letter. Makes sense, wouldn't you say? Then second, the letters would address themselves to recipients. That's to say, if I were writing a letter back then, I would begin by saying, John Newfelt, to my dear friend Oliver or Lance or Irwin or Clive or someone like that. And then third, I would give my greetings. How are you? Something like, I hear you're doing well. I'm so pleased. And then only after that, I'd launch into the actual letter. And when you read Jude, or for that matter, any of the New Testament letters, that's exactly the formula that we find. It's simply a standard way in which the ancients wrote all of their letters. But all of the New Testament letters have a unique feature to them, something you find only in the New Testament. It's really not found in other letters. In the New Testament, we find that the introduction to the letter also contains a theology right there in the greeting, and it's a theology that sets the stage for everything that's to come. And that's exactly what we find in Jude. Look again at the beginning of the letter. It begins as the author identifies himself. He's, he's Jude, and if you heard me yesterday, you heard me say that this Jude is the half-brother of Jesus, the youngest of all of Jesus' brothers. Now, if Jude were alive today, and knowing what we know about our culture, well, we'd expect him to say, Jude, the half-brother of Jesus. And then Jude would have written a book about his, you know, his personal memories of Jesus while he was growing up. And then we would have expected him to go on a speaking tour. And his entire career would have been based on that identity. But no, nothing even remotely like that is found in this book. Jude goes on to say two things about himself. The first is not his physical relationship to Jesus, but rather his spiritual relationship to him. He is a servant of Jesus. The Greek word that he chooses is the word doulos. It quite literally means slave. Now, I know we don't like the word slave, but that's how Jude wants us to think about him. Not someone who has a special privilege in that he grew up in the same house as Jesus did, but rather that he, like every other Christian in history, bows his knee before Jesus and calls him Lord and King and gladly sacrifices his own life into the hands of Christ. And that's not just humility, that's reality. Jude knows that's precisely who he is. I mean, after all, it was Jesus who said, and it's recorded in, in Matthew 12, verse 50, Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. That's to say, Mary, James, Jude, all took their place not above other Christians, but alongside of them. They were all slaves of Jesus. And then Jude adds that he's the brother of James. He, he's merely identifying himself here. I mean, people didn't have last names, so Jude's identifying himself. Now, having stated his identity, Jude then addresses the people who will receive the letter. And here we have to confess some ignorance. We actually don't know who originally got this letter. Were they primarily Jewish Christians? You know, some think that because James, Jude's brother, had a ministry that was primarily to Jewish Christians, then probably Jude would have also had the same. But we also know that Jude may have been a traveling preacher, so it's, it's virtually impossible to speculate who these people were that received the letter. And yet, Look at how Jude addresses these Christians. He calls them those who are called. Another way of saying that is to those who are invited. Jude might here be remembering Jesus' own words recorded in John 15, verse 16. 
You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Or he might have been thinking of Jesus' words recorded in in John 6.65. No one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. See, this idea of being chosen is echoed constantly in Paul's writings, but we also find it in Peter's writings. For instance, 1 Peter 2 verse 9 says of Christians, but you are a chosen race. John says the same, Revelation 17, 14, where where John calls those who are saved, those who are called and chosen and faithful. Jude begins by addressing his readers as the ones called by God because he's talking about the gospel of grace. Notice what he says next. When speaking to his readers as those who are called, he adds two qualifiers. The first, they're beloved. Now, in one sense, everyone ever born is loved by God, But Jude is using the term loved or beloved in the context of our salvation. See, the passage doesn't say that they are loved by God. It says they are beloved in God the Father. That's to say they're united with God, having been saved by him. And then he adds, and kept for Jesus Christ. Again, we're reminded of the words of Jesus, and it's recorded in in John 6.39. Jesus says, and this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that has been given to me. That is, the one whom God the Father has lovingly chosen, God the Son is able to keep. Now, the reason all of that is so important is because by the time we get to the end of the letter, we're going to see that Jude warns that false teachers, these false teachers were not chosen. Rather, he says in verse 4 that they have crept in unnoticed. They got in another way, not invited by God, but they came on their own accord. Now look, of course, all of us who are in Christ have answered the call. We've responded to the call. We've said yes to Jesus. But Jude wants us to understand that we're in Christ because God has called us. He's chosen us. And because Christ has the ability to keep us, we've been born again. That would be John's language, but but Jude would echo that language. That's how we came to be a part of the fold. And that's not how the false teachers got in. I Will Tell. This is a series where Dr. Neufeld focuses on the theme verse and a command found in Psalm 78, verse 4. In it, we're compelled by these words, I will not hide the great deeds of the Lord, which he has done in the past from the next generation. This popular series provides you the tools and incentive to share the gospel. It will help inspire you rather than guilt you into action. It reminds us that we each bear responsibility to intentionally share the truths of the gospel, the God of the Bible, his deeds, and his provision for all those that believe. This month, we're excited to offer this entire series on CD for anyone who would ask, our gift to encourage and inspire. Ask for a copy of I Will Tell for yourself or even pass it on to a friend. All you need to do is visit backtothebible.ca or give us a call at 1-800-663-2425. Before Jude moves into the body of his letter, he has a greeting to convey to his readers. Remember the formula. All ancient letters started 
by identifying the author of the letter, then those who received the letter, and then simply a greeting. That's what we find in verse 2. Simply says, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. You know, it's been said that grace means getting that which we don't deserve. That's to say, we didn't deserve to be saved. We received it as a gift. That's called grace. We didn't deserve it. It was a gift. But mercy, well, mercy is the opposite of grace. If grace is getting what we didn't deserve, mercy is not getting that which we did deserve. See, we deserve justice. We deserve condemnation for our sins. But in wondrous love, God took from us that which we rightfully deserved. And so by using the term mercy, Jude wants his readers to remember that, as as Paul would have said, that we are by nature objects of divine wrath. But because of God's mercy, we found our way into the camp of God. Peace is the next word, and it it refers to reconciliation. And no doubt, Jude means reconciliation with God. God is no longer angry with you, but he is at peace with you. And love, well, as we've already seen, refers to the love of God, which caused him to usher in our salvation. That's it. That's Jude's opening to his letter. And from the very outset, Jude wants to signal to all the people of God that we, the chosen of God, are very different from the false teachers. We've received mercy, whereas the false teachers, as he will say in verse 7, can only expect the punishment of eternal fire. And so it should be obvious that although the book of Jude begins like any standard ancient letter, yet it is unique. Jude, in a brief opening, has already stated the theme of the entire letter. You, he says to believers, are called by God. You're beloved in God. You're the objects of mercy, and you're now at peace with God. Please don't forget that. Everything that follows in this letter takes for granted that his readers won't forget. They must always remember the reason they're they're different from the false teachers is because God has had mercy on them. The difference between them and the false teachers is because of God and his plan of salvation. Having set the table for what is to follow, Jude now introduces his theme, that is, the point of the entire letter. Verse 3, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. You know, Jude says, I wanted to write a very different letter from this one. I had wanted to write a letter about our common salvation. So I assume he means by that the theology of our salvation. How is it that we, being sinners and and enemies of God, ended up being chosen and loved by God and and at peace with God? How did that happen? You know, I have a very dear friend, Pat Sabell. He wrote a beautiful worship chorus. It's called, Jesus, Thank You. The chorus says, Your blood has washed away my sins. Jesus, thank you. The Father's wrath completely satisfied. Jesus, thank you. Once your enemy, now seated at your table, Jesus, thank you. And that's the mystery of our salvation. How did an enemy of God end up at the table of our Lord? See, I have no doubt that this is what Jude had in mind. That's what he wanted to write about. And had he done so, it would have been a marvelous study. But something happened that prevented him from writing on that theme. A crisis had occurred, and that crisis demanded full attention. And so Jude changed his theme 
Now his book will not be a theology of our salvation, but rather an earnest appeal, a a serious plea to contend for the faith. What is Jude talking about when he says contend for the faith? So would you notice that most of the time when the word faith occurs in the New Testament, it occurs as a verb. You know, as an example, in the Gospel of John, John uses the word faith or to believe 98 times, 98 times in 21 chapters, and yet never once does he use the word as a noun. It's always a verb. Faith for John is to believe. Faith is to trust. Faith is to express confidence in God the Father and in his Son, Jesus. And in truth, that's how most of us think about the word faith. And and we're not wrong to think that way. That's good. But here in Jude, the word faith is a noun. And so Jude's not talking about an action word, and he's not talking about believing. Rather, he's talking about the content of what it is that is believed. And according to Jude verse 20, he says, we are to build ourselves up in the most holy faith. That is, we are to become familiar with the content of our faith. And says Jude in verse 3, this body of Christian truth, this thing he calls the faith, well, that has once for all been delivered to the saints. He's speaking about a body of truth that has been handed down from Jesus and given to his apostles and then finally to us. Paul spoke about that very same thing. He said it in Ephesians 2 verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. That's to say, the message of the New Testament is the message that was delivered by the apostles and prophets. It's our foundation. It's the never-changing truths in an ever-changing world. They are basic truths that are foundational, and they can and must never be changed. They are once for all delivered, and that's why we must never move beyond our foundation. That's why Paul says in 1 Timothy 6 verse 20, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. See, the deposit, that's the same thing as the faith. That's our foundation. It's the unchanging doctrines of the Word of God. Now, says Jude, we need to contend for the faith. And what does that mean? Well, the word contend is a word that comes either from the world of the military or the world of athletics. And in either case, it means a great contest or a great competition in which there will be a winner and there's going to be a loser. So imagine two ancient armies standing on a battlefield and then suddenly the first wave of arrows followed by both sides running at each other, shields brandished, swords and spears in place. Great contest is engaged and before the day is done, one army will stand in utter victory and the other in utter defeat. That's the outcome of these contests. It's very serious. It's a serious business. And Jude says when it comes to the faith, you're going to have to contend for it. Fight for it in such a way that you're not aiming for a negotiated peace. You're aiming for absolute victory. Now, Jude's not telling us not to be sensitive or not to listen to those who disagree with us. I've sometimes argued that all the truths that we discuss are held in one of three ways. One are those truths that we discuss with an open hand. That is to say, even though the truths are important, our hands are open to each other. Other truths are discussed with a guarded hand. See, when we discuss them, we're deeply concerned that those who deny those truths may damage themselves. But some truths are discussed with a closed fist. And these are the truths in which there must be no disagreement. 
They include things like the Trinity and the two natures of Christ and the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ, the visible return of Christ to judge the living and the dead, the glorious truths that we've been saved from our sins by grace and through faith alone. Here's what Jude is telling us. We're going to have to go to war to defend those truths, for false teachers are seeking to subvert them. And in verse 4, he says, certain people have crept in unnoticed among the people of God, and they're seeking to undermine the foundation of your faith. You're going to have to go to war, he says. There's a great contest underfoot. You know, Augustine knew that when he fought against Pelagius, and Athanasius knew that when he fought against the Arians, and Luther understood that when he fought against the works righteousness that was being taught in Rome. And in our day, whether it's the truth that the Bible is the Word of God, or that Jesus' death really is a sacrificial atonement, or that Jesus is the only way unto salvation, or that sin really is a problem, or that even the smallest sin equals eternal damnation. You see, all of these truths demand that we fight to preserve them, for if we do not fight for them, they will be lost. And if they are lost, the way to salvation will be lost among the community of men and women, and if the way to salvation is lost, then nothing lies before us but damnation. This battle is the most important battle ever engaged in the history of the human race. John, I think what you're saying today is really hitting at the core of our struggles in faith today is that, you know, when you talk about foundational things, I'm not even sure we always know what they are. And as Jude would say, if we don't know what they are, I mean, how can we defend them? So what do we do about that? What is the issue that's before us? Yeah, and conversely, the issue is that when we aren't aware of the foundational elements of our faith, Ben, then we end up fighting about silly stuff. I mean, I've sometimes seen believers fight about things that are not essential, and you want to say to yourself, look, there is a great battle in this day for such important truths, and you're fighting about this, right? So that, I think, needs to be said. But then having said that, you know, there are certain things about our salvation that unless we go to war for, I mean, everything is at stake when we do that. I mean, you know, when you think about Luther fighting that the gospel of our salvation must be clearly understood, Uh, being willing to be excommunicated from the church and even being put to death, recognizing that this warfare was more important than anything else. We've got to identify those elements and fight for them. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series in the book of Jude, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Hey, we wanted you to know that there's still time to order our beautiful limited edition Back to the Bible Canada 2021 Growing in Faith Scripture Calendar. It provides you with words of encouragement, beautiful pictures of creation, and a uniquely designed Bible reading plan by Dr. Neufeld, encouraging all of us to open up our Bibles. Use your calendar as a daily reminder to practice the discipline of reading God's Word. This resource is filled with encouragement and it's yours for free. There are limited quantities of this free calendar, so reach out today to ensure you get your copy of our 2021 Growing in Faith Scripture Calendar. To request your copy today and perhaps give a financial gift to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, 
Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.